this evening. Our text comes from Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. And I want to invite you to read along as I read our text. Be it in your bulletin or on your iPhones, whatever apparatus it is that you have that possesses the word of God. And you'll find these words recorded. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, and 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Verse 9, after this I looked, and behold, a multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the promises contained therein. Lord, we thank you that your word will go, will go out and not return void. It will accomplish all that it is set out to do. And Father, this evening we ask you to help us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would remove the veil off of blind eyes. We ask that you would remove the block out of deaf ears. And we pray that you would turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. And Lord, this evening I ask that my words would be your words. And what is not of you, let it fall to the ground. I boast now in my weakness that your power may rest upon me. Empower me for this, your service. Not to us, O Lord, be the glory. Not to us, but to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, this past spring, I had the opportunity, the privilege to get together with a group of folks who care passionately about reconciliation, justice, peace, harmony, all things that are important to us as believers who are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And at this meeting, a friend of mine and I went to the Lincoln Memorial. And this was one of the highlights of my life because we went there to the Lincoln Memorial and we stood in the very spot where Martin Luther King Jr. stood and gave his famous I have a dream speech. And what was so unique about that time was this was a white brother. I am a black brother. Both of us are in the Lord and both of us come from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Both of us come from different societal backgrounds. Both of us come from different ethnic backgrounds. And yet and still we stood there embracing one another and living out the dream that Martin Luther King had so many years ago in 1963. It was such an honor to stand there in that spot and say, in some way, shape, or form, we are the living realization of this dream that Martin Luther King had years ago. And I suspect this evening that many of you in here have a same longing like Martin Luther King had. He had a longing for a society where multiple people from different backgrounds, be it socioeconomically, be it educational, be it generational, descendants of slaves, descendants of slave owners would come together at the table of fellowship. And I suspect that many of you in here share that same longing where different kinds of people could live together harmoniously in peace and righteousness not one thinking that he is greater than the other because of status or title, not one having to feel like he is subservient to another because of lack. And this morning, if you have that longing for the new society where harmony and peace exists among people that are different, if you have that longing, and there's a word from the Lord for you this evening, there's also a challenging word from the Lord for us this evening. And we will see here in our text three divisions, God's diverse mission field, God's diverse church on earth, and God's diverse church in heaven. God's diverse, church, God's diverse mission field, God's diverse church on earth, and God's diverse church in heaven. For our first point, God's diverse mission field, I want to borrow from chapter 5, that, and it has not been read into your hearing, but by way of summary, John is in the heavenly courtroom. He is in the heavenly throne room and he sees God Almighty sitting on his throne with lights, with brilliant stones all around him, adorning him. And in his right hand, he sees a scroll. And that scroll is sealed with seven seals. And John looks and he sees that there is no one found who is worthy, no one found who is competent, no one who is able to break open these seals. And no one who is able to carry out the mandate that is scripted on the front and back of this scroll. And John begins to weep. And then one of the heavenly hosts say to John, don't you worry, 
about that, John. God has done something about this situation. And John sees one standing as a lion. John sees the root of David. He sees the lion that comes from the tribe of Judah. He sees none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who conquered all his and all our enemies. And not only does John see this lamb that is, this lion that is standing there, he also sees a lamb that is standing as though it was slain. And what do we have, beloved, other than Jesus Christ, the lion lamb, the one who conquered our enemies by dying, the one who conquered death by himself dying. And so John's heart is encouraged by the heavenly hosts. They say to him, John, don't you worry. Here is the one who is worthy to carry out all of God's plans for history. Here is the one who is worthy to carry out all of God's plans for redemption. And when we get to verse 9 of chapter 5, it says they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What John gets in this scroll, what John gets in this scene is a glorious plan, a, a glorious picture of God's plan for history. And what we find here is that God's plan for redemptive history encompasses a broad mission field. It encompasses a broad cross section of people. God's mission field is wider in scope than anything that you and I could ever imagine. <coughs> And he sees this glorious picture. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, you will see that this was God's plan from the very beginning, from the very calling of Abraham. He says to Abraham, it was read in your text, read into your hearing earlier, that I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. And how in the world is it that Abraham can be a blessing to all the families of the earth when he has no children of his own? I can only imagine Abraham standing there scratching his head. Nonetheless, Abraham obeys God and he moves along. He trusts the Lord. And as we move throughout the pages of redemptive history, we see this idea of God's diverse mission field emerge again in Psalm 87. The psalmist says, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of Zion. And what is the psalmist saying? What is the psalmist talking about? The psalmist is talking about the city center, the center where God's presence dwell in a unique way, more concentrated than any other place on the earth. God dwelled in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, in a way that was unique compared to any other place on the earth. At Jerusalem, the sacrifices took place. At Jerusalem, theological education took place. The Israelites made pilgrimages to Jerusalem. It was the city of salvation, if you will. But the psalmist sees a day where this glorious city will encompass people that are enemies of Israel. The psalmist says that in the registry 
of this city. It will be recorded names like Babylon, names like Rahab, names like Philistia, names like Tyre, names like Cush. What in the world is the psalmist saying about this glorious city? Not only does he say that day is coming, but he establishes it in a future event. So the psalmist sees something beautiful about the city, the historic city of Zion, but he also sees a heavenly Zion that awaits all those who trust in the true and living God. And what the psalmist declares is that those who once enslaved Israel will now become members in this glorious city. The psalmist declares that Babylon who destroyed the temple will no longer be called enemies, but they will be called friends of God and friends of God's people. And the psalmist would sing this in the worship service. They sung this song loudly because they knew that God was sovereign over the nations, not only in terms of his power over them, but in terms of them coming to worship him and know him as a true and living God too. And so Israel rejoiced at the day when their enemies would become their friends. Beloved, you ask me how big is God's mission field? I say it's a big one. You ask me if God's mission field is narrow in focus, and I say no, God's mission field is diverse in focus. We move from Genesis 12 to Psalm 87, and we see in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, the one in whom the promise made to Abraham was fulfilled and the one in whom the prophecy by the psalmist was fulfilled. I said to you, how is it that Abraham could be a blessing to all the families of the earth? God, God made good on his promise and we know the miraculous birth of Isaac. But Paul says in Galatians chapter three that in Jesus Christ, all those who place their trust in Jesus Christ become descendants of Abraham. So how is it that Abraham can be a blessing to all the families of the earth? Well, it doesn't matter what background from which you descend. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your station in life is. If you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a spiritual descendant of Abraham. How is it that enemies, people who were once estranged from one another, how is it that a nation who once enslaved another now suddenly sits down at the table of fellowship? Well, it's in the work of Jesus Christ. That's where we see the fulfillment of the promise and the prophecy is all bound up in Jesus Christ. And how do we see this fleshed out in Jesus Christ's earthly ministry? Jesus Christ comes and he preaches the good news to the house of Israel. Jesus Christ comes to Nicodemus the Pharisee, the great teacher of the law shares the good news with Nicodemus. Jesus moves from Israelite territory to the, the Samaritan territory. And if you know anything about the history between the Israelites and the Samaritans, it was a tumultuous one. It was a hostile one. They thought the Samaritans were half-breeds. They did not want to associate with the Samaritans. Yet and still we see Jesus engaging in all manner of social taboo hanging out with the Samaritan woman at the well, telling her about her sin and then telling her about living water, sharing the good news with her. And so we see Jesus Christ's salvation move from Israel to Samaria. 
We see Jesus Christ move from Samaria on his way back to, Caper to Capernaum. And then we see a nobleman come from the court of Herod and to pass and say, Lord, my son is sick and he is about to die. I heard that you were doing some things in this region and I need you to come and heal him. This man was probably a wealthy man. This man was probably a man of resource. This man was probably a Gentile. And Jesus heals this man, heals this man's son. Jesus moves from the who's who of society to the who, what, of society. And we are all the who, who, of society. In John chapter 5, Jesus comes to a man who was an invalid for 38 years and says, do you want to be healed? And the man said, every time the pool of Bethesda is stirred up, people step over me. So Jesus goes to the top. Jesus goes to the bottom. Jesus goes to those who are in the in crowd. Jesus goes to the marginalized and the distressed. Jesus' salvation is far broader in scope than you and I could ever imagine. From Israel to the Gentile territory, Jesus spreads the good news about salvation. And then when we get to Matthew chapter 28, after Jesus' resurrection, he says, all power on heaven, all power on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say go to one nation. He doesn't say go to two nations. He doesn't say go to three nations. He says go to all nations and spread the good news. You ask me, preacher, how big is God's mission field? And I tell you, God's mission field is a diverse one, broader in scope than anything you and I could ever imagine. We move along to Acts as we continue to turn the pages of redemptive history. And what do we see? After Jesus has ascended to be with the Father in heaven, we see the Holy Spirit come down from heaven and men start speaking in tongues. They start hearing the gospel in their native language. It says that people from every nation under heaven came to Jerusalem and they heard the gospel in their own language. And here we see God continuing to carry out his purpose. Here we see God continuing to execute his evangelistic plan of reaching people from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language. You ask me, preacher, how big is God's mission field? And I'll tell you, it's a diverse mission field, broader in scope than anything you and I could ever imagine. The people said, what is wrong with these people? What is all this foolishness going on at this hour of the day? Are these folks drunk? And I say to you, no, they're not the Presbyterians from the 9 a.m. service. <laughs> no, they're not the Presbyterians who were drinking a glass of Woodford at noon after I finished preaching. These were the folks who had been filled with the Holy Spirit, who had heard the gospel in their language. These are the folks who we see God's plan from Psalm 87 carried out. We see enemy nations coming together under one true and living God. And so what this text forces us to do this morning, this afternoon, TCPC, 
is wrestle with the question of how big is your target audience? How broad is your target audience? When we read this text, when we see that God's mission field is diverse, we have to wrestle with the question, how big is our target audience? And do we place qualifications on the type of people that we think are worthy to hear the gospel? Do we wake up and say, the only type of people with whom I will share the gospel is the one that I see in the mirror every day? Do we wake up and say that the only type of people with whom I will share the gospel are those who have pockets that are deep enough? Do we, ask, do we say to ourselves, the only type of people with whom I will share the gospel are those who are of great status in society? Or do we have the mind of our Savior who had a broad cross-section of people? This text forces us to wrestle with that. This text forces us to wrestle with pressing the gospel into the changing demographic of our nation. Brothers and sisters, as a church plant, you have a unique opportunity to be a witness for the Lord in this regard. By 2042, the United States Census says that America will be 54% minority. That is, America will be 54% brown and 46% white. And some people are afraid. Some people are fearful of the change that is happening to our country. Some people get tight-fisted. Some people get worried that the good old days will no longer be. But I want to submit to you this afternoon that we should be celebrating because God is bringing the nations to our shores. We should be excited about the opportunity to share the good news of the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore to a demographic that is changing right before our eyes. We should jump at the opportunity to reach those on the campus that are different than us. We should jump at the opportunity to reach our neighbor who, might, who may very well be different than us. We should be jumping at every opportunity to press the gospel into these realities. For we believe in Acts chapter 17 that God appoints man in their dwelling and the changing demographic of the United States does not surprise God Almighty at all because in his sovereign determination, he is bringing it to pass. So the question is, what will we do in light of knowing that God has a diverse mission field? We see God's diverse mission field and we also see God's diverse church here on earth. If you look at chapter seven, we see, we see God's judgment on the horizon. After the sixth seal is broken open, the question is asked, who will be able to stand? Who will be able to withstand this great day of the Lamb? In chapter 6, verse 17, the mountains will not be able to save you. Your money will not be able to save you. Your prestige will not be able to save you. Your materials will not be able to save you. Who will be able to withstand the great day of the Lamb's wrath when it comes upon us? And John, as we move to chapter 7, sees angels holding, angels who've been deputized to carry out God's judgment, to exhibit his wrath, standing at the four corners of the earth symbolizing God's judgment being universal in scope. 
And then another angel comes with the seal of the living God and says, you hold on. Y'all hold on just a little while longer until all of God's folks are sealed. And who are the people that will be sealed? When we keep on reading down here, it says 144,000. This is rich with symbolism of completion and multitude. There will be more than 144,000 spared the wrath of the lamb. But if you notice here, there's some significant things that happen that happens in this text here from verses five through eight. These are the 12 tribes of Jacob and we see alterations happen. We see people repositioned. We see tribes that were not included in the promise brought in. We see all kinds of things start to happen in this text. And I want to highlight three of those things. We see something happen with Judah. We see something happen with Levi. And we see something happen with the slave children being elevated over some of Jacob's children. What in the world is John trying to say to us? When we see the tribe of Judah elevated over Reuben, the firstborn, it symbolizes Jesus Christ, our lion lamb, our conquering savior, leading his people into the promised land. It demonstrates that Judah, the one Jesus Christ, the one who came from the lion, the, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the one who will conquer all of our enemies. He is leading the church. And this is a picture of the historic church. This is a picture of the church in the here and now. Jesus Christ is the head of our church. And when we see Judah right here, we see the prophecies coming to pass that the scepter will not depart the tribe of Judah. It will not. But not only do we see Jesus Christ, we see Judah at the head of the class. We see Levi included in this number. The tribe of Levi is the tribe of the priests. They were responsible for making the sacrifices. They were responsible for bringing the offerings before the Lord. And what is John saying to us? All those who are in Jesus Christ are now living sacrifices. What John is saying to us right now is that we are living sacrifices. Those of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ right now, it's not something that will happen in the distant future. It is something in the here and now. That's why Paul says, present yourselves as living sacrifices. So as our Savior laid down his life for us, we return our lives to him as true sacrifices, as a fragrant offering to God Almighty. And so we see the tribe of Judah. We see the tribe of Levi. And what else do we see here? We see Asher, Naphtali, and Gad included in this number and raised to a high position. These were the children of the slave women. These were the children, these children were the products of the outsiders. These were the unprivileged. These were the underprivileged being brought in to God's fold. And who does that represent other than the Gentiles? We who were far off had been brought near. And so Jesus is in the business of reconciling enemies to God and one another. Jesus is in the business of turning us in to living sacrifices. And Jesus is in the business of taking the marginalized and the distressed and the oppressed and those who seem insignificant to society and bringing them into the family of God. Amen. 
And that, beloved, is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ right here, right now on earth. That is a reality in which we live right now. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And Paul says to us in Ephesians chapter 2, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, the wall of hostility that existed between the Jew and the Gentile has been raised. R-A-Z-E-D. That is the hostility and the enmity that existed between the Jew and the Gentile has been torn down in the blood of Jesus Christ. The hostility, the wall of hostility that exists between black and white in our country, in the church, it has been torn down in Jesus Christ. The hostility that exists between the haves and the have-nots have been torn down in the blood of Jesus Christ in the church. The hostility between those who are significant in society and those who are insignificant in society has been torn down by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 11, because of the work that Jesus Christ did in saving those of us who were once dead, now he is building a new society, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He is building a new man, and the verbs in that text are in the present. The Holy Spirit is building a brand new society right now of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. God is building a mosaic of people in his earthly church right now in the here and now. And yes, an amen, a resounding amen goes there. I know we are Presbyterian, but I give you permission to engage me in dialogical discourse. <laughs> I have the privilege of working with a group of folks who are, as I mentioned earlier, engaged in the work of reconciliation. And last week I was in New Orleans, and some of you may be familiar with the infamous Supreme Court decision known as Plessy v. Ferguson, where uh, an octoroon man named Homer Plessy, that is he was uh, seven-eighths European and one-eighth black, got together with the Citizens Council because they wanted to overturn the segregation laws in New Orleans. And so he got on a train cart, and then he was arrested, and it went before the court in Louisiana, and the judge upheld uh, the segregation laws. They took it to the, the state Supreme Court of Louisiana, and the, the law was still upheld, and it wound up all the way at the United States Supreme Court where they upheld separate but equal. And the ruling was seven to one. And the lone dissenter of that ruling was Judge John Marshall Harlan right here from yours truly, Kentucky. He did not agree that the law was right. And it was a beautiful evening for us because we met with this man who was the fourth generation, a fourth generation descendant of Homer Plessy. And he started telling us all the ins and outs of the story, all the facts that the history books got wrong. He started sharing with us. 
And little did we know that he had met the fourth generation descendant of Judge John Ferguson, a woman by the name of Phoebe Ferguson. And while we were dining, he said, I met with her right across the street for the first time at this building right over here. It was like a living history class for us. And he said upon their first meeting, they became friends instantly. And they started a foundation that removed, that changed the name from Plessy V. Ferguson to Plessy Ann Ferguson. Beloved, what a beautiful illustration of how the Lord Jesus Christ takes those who were once enemies and makes them friends. And I got to ask you the question this evening, TCPC, how has your reconciliation to Christ affected your hospitality to the outsider? How has your reconciliation to Christ affected your attitude towards the stranger? How has your reconciliation to Christ impacted those, impacted the way you treat those that are different than you? How has your reconciliation to Christ caused you to pursue those that are different than you? When people come to your gathering, do you offer them the pure and unadulterated message of Jesus Christ as the only hope for their salvation? Or do you place additional burdens on them? Do you make them feel like they have to culturally conform to your ways in order for them to share in the love of Christ here in this gathering? The secular psychologist Umar Johnson said, can you imagine what a little young black boy or little young black girl would go through if they walked into a Sunday school classroom and saw a picture of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European Jesus on the wall. He says that that child would automatically equate God with whiteness. He said that that child for the rest of their life would not think it strange that in every area of society that it was God's, that God had destined white people to rule over those that did not look like them. He said it would not be unusual for that child to think that something is wrong with them for being black or brown. It would not be unusual for that child to think that something is wrong with them for not being white. It would not be unusual for that child to think that God's lot for them in life is subservience and subjugation. It would not be unusual for that child to think that they perhaps were not created in God's image for the rest of their life. I want to submit to you this afternoon that not only does the picture of a white Jesus do damage to those who are not white, it does damage to those who are white as well. Why? Because it confuses your humanity. It gives you a misunderstanding about your role in society. It gives you a misunderstanding about what it means to be human. It will encourage you to missteward your power. It will encourage you to think that God has destined that you rule over people that don't look like you. And while we may not see this sanctuary adorned with images of white Jesus, we still have to ask ourselves the question if we think that we have the monopoly on Jesus, if we think our ethnic group, if we think our cultural system has the monopoly on Jesus. 
And the way that we know this is by the way we treat others that have different cultural expressions when it comes to worshiping God. If we isolate ourselves from folks that are different than us, if we look down and frown upon others who have a different cultural expression of worship, then we may have to ask ourselves the question if we have somehow made God into made God after our own image and likeness. Whenever we think that our culture has a monopoly on God, we're doing danger. We're doing dangers to ourselves and those around us. Whenever we think that God is analogous to our kind, it hurts us and it hurts those around us. I ask you the question this evening, do you accept the outsider as they are? Or do you force them to conform to your cultural standards? I ask you the question this evening, do you lift high the name of Jesus Christ as the only hope for one's salvation and the only means, the preeminent means for reconciliation between enemies? Or do you lift high a political persuasion as the way, as the thing that must be embraced to receive love in this gathering? What do you elevate? Paul said, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul said that circumcision was not needed because at the church in Galatia there was some disturbing them, making the people think that they had to engage in customs that were specific to Israel, ethnic customs that were specific to Israel as a church under age. And Paul says that is no longer necessary. We're no different whenever we place a burden of cultural conformity or political conformity on people instead of offering them the free unadulterated gospel in order to come and share in our fellowships. We see God's diverse mission field. We see God's diverse church on earth. And finally, we see God's diverse church in heaven. Someone asked me the question at the outset of planting Christ United Fellowship. A prominent man in our city said to me, Michael, Church planting is hard enough. Why in the world do you want to plant a multi-ethnic cross-cultural church? And I said to him, Marshall, in seminary legalese, pursuant to Revelation 7-9, I believe we have permission to rehearse the eschaton. Now, all that means simply is that because of Revelation 7-9, I believe we have permission to rehearse the end right now. And when we turn to Revelation 7, 9, we see indeed that no one has a monopoly on Jesus. John says that after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. John moves from giving us a snapshot of history to showing us what the church looks like in the here and now to showing us what the church will look like when Jesus Christ comes back. So who are those that can withstand the wrath of the Lamb, all those who are in Jesus Christ, the conquering lion lamb. And John says that this will be from a broad cross-section of people, from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language. John gives us a picture 
of the end to spur us on for the here and now. And what are they doing? They are worshiping. They are filled with joy. The palm branches in their hands signifies that they have won the victory. The palm branches in their hands signify that their God, our God, the true and living God, Christ Jesus, has conquered. Their branches signify that God has secured, finally secured, all his people, his mosaic of people. I said to you that the end has implications for how we live in the here and now. I was meeting with a man recently who said to me, Michael, I've been convicted about some things. He said, I, everywhere I work, everywhere I play, everywhere I live, where my kids attend school, everyone looks just like me. Everyone thinks just like me. Everyone has a lot of money like me. I don't have to drive through certain neighborhoods. I don't have to think about problems that other people are facing because I live in isolation. And he said to me, that's not the kind of church that I want for my kids. I've been convicted about this. I've had the joy and luxury of living life in isolation and something about that bothers me. The Holy Spirit is working in that man's heart, bringing a realization to his life that the end has implications for how we live right now. Listen, brothers and sisters, I don't want to wait until the end to start celebrating together. I want to celebrate with my white brothers and sisters right now. I want to celebrate with my Asian brothers and sisters right now. I want to celebrate with my Latino brothers and sisters right now. I want to celebrate with my Caribbean brothers and sisters right now. I want to celebrate with my African brothers and sisters right now. And forgive me if I miss any continent. I want to celebrate with all my brothers and sisters right now from myriad extractions. Why? Because Jesus has showed me the end of the story and he has said to me, Aitchison, you have permission to worship with your brothers and sisters right now. You don't have to wait till the end. I give you permission to do it right now. And that's why I want to plant a church that is multi-ethnic and cross-cultural. I see diversity in this room. And I pray that God will continue to grow you in your diversity. I pray that you all will be able to reach across cultural lines with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that when people come to your assembly, they will say something seems slightly different about this one. The people don't all look the same. The people don't all talk the same. The people don't all come from the same background, but yet they love each other. And I'm not advocating to you that every single church has to look like this. I'm not advocating to you that every single church has to be one that is as diverse as the church we see in heaven. There are practical realities that prohibit that. I don't expect the church out in the middle of Montana and both morning services affirm this. I don't expect a church out in the middle of Montana to be filled with black people. And one woman came up to me after church and said, I have a home in Montana and you're right. <laughs> she confirmed it. But in the very least, what I do expect is when we have the opportunity to do it, that we will pursue a broad cross section of people 
In the very least, I expect that we would have the mind of Christ, who in his earthly mission did not discriminate with whom he shared the gospel. I expect that even if we are a homogenous gathering, that we are so filled with the mind and heart of the end of the story that we are a welcoming and open place to the outsider. I expect that our gatherings will be places where we will long for and expect the outsider to come and that they will be able to come and experience the love of Jesus Christ. That is the type of ethos that I do expect, even if it's a homogenous demographic. This story, the end of the story, forces us to get rid of the tagline, I don't see color. We should get rid of that tagline. I appreciate the sentiment of people saying, I don't see color. I appreciate the heart and the attitude of what people are trying to communicate. They're trying to say that I don't discriminate against a person based on how they look. But beloved, when you look at the end of the story, you see different people around the throne celebrating salvation. When you walk into this room, you see people who look different. You are looking at a black man standing up here preaching the good news of the gospel to you. I'm looking at a room full of white people scattered with brown and black and myriad ethnic compositions. I see you and I embrace you just as God embraces you. And if we would catch a vision for the end of the story, we could celebrate God's creativity instead of dancing around the issue of race. No, I want us to see each other. And I want us to say that there is something beautiful about God in you. I want us to see that there is something creative about God. I want us to see the diversity in the mind of God. I want us to embrace the unity in the heart of God. And if we catch that vision, then suddenly I see you as you are and I love you just as God loves you. It makes more sense than I don't see color. At CUF, we say, I see you and bring all of who you are to the table that we might be built up and edified by one another. I see your cultural differences. I see your expressions. I want to be blessed by your expression. Justin, you blessed me earlier today. I heard the song that you sang. I heard the genre in which you sang it. At our church, we sing gospel songs. We sing classical hymns. We hear the expressions and we are built up. I am built up by this brother's ministry. I am built up by my white brother standing up there leading us in the service. And I want you to be built up by me. I don't want to wait to heaven to hug you. I want to hug you now and love you right now. And I want you to hug me and love me right now because the end says that we have permission to do so. And I want the world to see that there is something different about the body of Christ. There is a lot of social unrest. There is a lot of racial tension in our country right now. And beloved, we as the church of Jesus Christ have the constitution and we have the arena for true racial healing. And why would we run from it? When the world is trying everything, when the world is fighting, when the world is jockeying and contending for position, when the peoples are at odds with one another, oh, that the church would rise up and say, we have a place where you can have a renewed image. We have a place where you can share in a fellowship with people that are different than you, but they will love you just as you are. 
we have a place for those who may feel insignificant that will be made significant. We have a place where those who were considered outsiders can be brought near. We have that place in the church of Jesus Christ. We have that place. Today, this afternoon, you may be a cynic. This afternoon, you may be overwhelmed by all the unrest that you see on the news, and you may say, I give up. Well, I want to encourage you not to give up because we know how the end of the story turns out. This morning, you may not love Jesus, but you have a heart and passion to be reconciled to people that are different than you. And I want to say to you, if you place your trust in the lion lamb, if you place your trust in the one who will spare all of his ransomed, all of his redeemed from every nation, tribe, and tongue from the coming wrath, you will be included in this great number. You will be included in God's diverse church on earth right now. And you will be included in God's diverse church in heaven for all eternity. Please pray with me. Uh, God and our Father, we thank you for your goodness and mercy toward us. Lord, we pray that you would seal this word to our hearts so that we would be set free to serve you with joyful obedience. Amen.